Good morning, everybody. Today's uh, passage is going to be the third chapter of Joel. And we're going to read the entire chapter. So, uh, Joel chapter 3. And when you find it, would you please stand for reading God's word? All right, Joel chapter 3, starting in verse 1. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold, and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares in the swords, and your pruning hooks in the spears, and let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in and tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood on their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all the generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're um, thankful for your word this morning, for the reading of it, and Lord, for the um, opportunity and privilege to be able to consider these things. And Lord, we, we want to do so prayerfully, so we're, we're looking to you, Lord, uh, acknowledging our dependence on you and asking, Lord, for your, for your enabling power. Lord, this passage um, that we are looking at today um, has uh, many difficulties about it for us. And yet, uh, I think the main 
message shines through clear, but Lord, help us with all of it again so that we may uh, grasp it and grasp the importance of it and, and rightly apply um, what you are instructing here. Uh, Father, may we interpret correctly and apply correctly. Use it all to, to change us so that our, our vision may be set more and more on things above on you, on what is really needful, what is really important, so that we may have our priorities straight. Lord, use it to grow us and mature us as we do these things so that we, uh, we may become more and more Christ-like for as long as we are in this world. And in all be honored and glorified, we pray. And again, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, amen. I was telling somebody just the other day, you know, when you're, I was telling that we're going through the, the book of Joel here, and it presents, uh, like a lot of the prophetic genre, it presents uh, a lot of, of challenges, but um, um, the main points are usually crystal clear. We, we just have a tendency to, to, to focus on uh, um, secondary things a lot of times and, and try to figure out all the details. Um, but usually, uh, again, the main points are crystal clear. So that's where I try to put the greatest emphasis on those things that, that, that are clear and that, and that we know. And, um, and on the other things, uh, just, I just try to be honest with you about uh, the fact that there are different interpretations and, and uh, you know, that, we're not, that they're not so clear. So... I, Lord willing, you know, we're going to complete this study on Joel this morning and be prepared to do some, um, some turning, page turning, because we're going to look at some um, passages that I want to connect that I think are directly connected with Joel here, and I'll show you that as we, as we go along. I still like to hear the rustling of pages, by the way, although I'm thankful for technology. I mean, if your, phone's on, if your Bible is on your phone, that's awesome. So, so no condemnation to you, but I do like to hear in the hear in the pages shuffle, and it kind of lets you know everybody's everybody's going there. Uh, so that's good. Um, plus, to me, there's just you know there's just something about holding holding the Bible. But but I but I do use my phone a lot as well. So uh, either way, you got it. You got it on the phone or a pad or or, uh, or on the printed page. Uh, be ready to to start going through it. All right. I want to look at several passages. I'm I'm just gonna point out two things primarily, which is what I think the, the Lord does here. Uh, what we're talking about, okay, is the day of the Lord. Now, this has been the, the, the main thing um, all the way through here. And uh, it's mentioned, that phrase is used again here. In fact, I'll give you the list of the times it's mentioned. Um, in, in chapter 1, verse 15, for example, Alas, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction comes from, as destruction from the Almighty it comes. All right, so, so this is a, a major theme in Joel's whole prophecy, that the day of the Lord is at hand. So he's calling on the people of uh, Judah here to, uh, to prepare for it. Another reference to it is in chapter 2, verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. This time he says it's... It's coming. And, and I, I mentioned this before as we were going through that, but I, I think you can take that in the present tense as, as well as the future. Uh, in other words, it's coming 
now in one sense. Um, God is judging. He's judging now. Um, but, but there is coming future uh, a, a final judgment. In fact, we're going to focus on that some this morning. So chapter 2, verse 1. Also chapter 2, verse 11. You, you have it again. The Lord utters His voice before His army, for His camp is exceedingly great. For, he, for uh, he who executes His word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? That's great, and that's great language. The day of the Lord is great and very awesome. And we're actually going to this morning talk about two aspects of that, um, what I think Joel is saying here. But the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? And then in chapter 3, verse 1, not verse 1, it's going to be um, verse 11. Oop. I'll get it right in a minute. Verse 14. Verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes... In the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. So, back in chapter 1, um, he says essentially the same thing there. The day of the Lord is near. Then he says the day of the Lord is coming. And then again, here in chapter 3, verse 14, the day of the Lord is near. So, so this is what the whole prophecy is about. The, the, the coming day of the Lord. It's at hand. Be ready. Be prepared for it. Um, it's coming. Now, I said we're going to talk about two main aspects of it, so I'm going, to, I'm going to do it this way. And you can just title it The Day of the Lord. We'll make it simple. The Day of the Lord. Or you might want to um, call it that great and awesome day or something like that. The Day of the Lord. And two things, um, two aspects of it. One, it's a day of revenge. And we'll deal with that first. And then two, it's going to be a day of restoration. Or you, might, or you might want to use the term rescue, either one of those. It is, it is a, a rescue. But a day of revenge and a day of restoration. The great and awesome day of the Lord. So what are we talking about when we talk about revenge? Well, this is where the condemnation, the, the, the judgment, in fact, the final judgment comes into play. Look at, again at verse 1. For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there. So God says He's going he's to bring judgment. In verse 12, He says, I will sit to, ju- to judge the surrounding nations. In verse 21, I will avenge their blood. Talking about... Um, the, uh, the mistreatment of his people, I will avenge their blood. And he talks about um, also bringing uh, judgment on Tyre and Sidon and uh, Philistia, um, as well as Egypt and Edom. So, so it's a day of judgment, a, a day of condemnation coming, uh, coming on those who oppose God and those who oppose God's people. Now, um, here's what's been one of the difficulties as we've gone through this. Um, we, we were back in chapter 1 talking about the plague of chapter 1 and chapter 2 talking about the plague of locusts that came on the, the nation of Israel or, or Judah uh, specifically and we were talking about that being God's judgment on the land for their sin and I, I think that's a correct interpretation although Joel doesn't he doesn't give us the specifics of their sin he doesn't say what, what they did um, nevertheless he does call on them to repent Chapter 2, 
Verse 12, Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Alright, so, so in other words, we know that this judgment came on them because of their sin, even though Joel doesn't tell us specifically what their sin was. Um, the fact that he's calling them to repentance... And promising restoration if they repent um, lets us know that, that, it, that it's the result of sin. So in that case, you've got God bringing judgment in the form of what we would think of as a natural disaster, uh, a plague of locusts overtaking the land, devastating all the crops, ruining, ruining their, their prosperity, uh, their fortunes, you know, what they, their, their livelihood. Judgment comes in that form on God's people, and they are called to... Repentance, But as I've said, um, moving through here, it also seems at times like there is um, reference to other nations harassing um, Israel, Judah, again in particular, that, uh, that God intends to deal with. And, and, and he mentions some of them, as I just noted a few moments ago. He mentions some of them here in chapter 3. So it's a little hard sometimes as you're moving through here to tell... Is, is he talking about the sin of Judah and the judgment of the locusts or even the judgment of other nations coming to, um, coming to uh, trouble Judah as a judgment from the Lord? Or, and I think the answer would be yes, he is talking about that at times, or is he talking about judgment coming on the other nations because they troubled Judah uh, in the form of war and so forth? Uh, yes, I think th- that's correct in some occasions. Some, sometimes it's hard to tell um, when you're moving from one to the other. But it seems that all are in view here. So let me, try to, let me try to sum it up this way. Job said, man's days are few and full of trouble. All right, that's an uh, encouraging word for life, isn't it? <laughs> but it's just the truth, isn't it? We have trouble in this world. So there's a certain amount of trouble that just comes as part of being in this world. We suffer trouble. Yet the, the Lord's in control of all of it, and none of it's by happenstance. So far, so far the believers, he, he uses those things to mold us, to conform us to the image of Christ, Works all things, Paul says in Ephesians 1.11, works all things according to the counsel of his own will. And what, what is he doing that? He's conforming us to the image of Christ, bringing us into submission more and more and more. You know, we're, we're at regeneration. We are, we are brought in to, a, uh, to submission to Christ in, in a true sense, and yet we still continue to, to sin. And so... Um, as we go through life, we have to grow. And we, and we have to, little by little, from glory to glory, faith to faith, be conformed to the likeness of Christ. And God uses hardship to do that. That's part of the discipline that the writer of Hebrews talks about in chapter 12. A lot of times people think of of, of the, the, the discipline, or the old King James uses the word chastisement in Hebrews. A lot of times people think of that as, as spanking. That, that, I would say that's included, 
But that's really not the metaphor there. Paul's using an athletic metaphor of discipline. Talks about running a race, right? Lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets us. Running with endurance the race that is set before us. And then he goes on to talk about the discipline of the Lord. He chastises or he disciplines those whom he loves. And the idea there is training. He trains us. And he does do that through suffering, hardship. We, we suffer things. Sometimes it's just a part of being in this world because this world has fallen. Sometimes it is the result, the direct result of sin. You know, we, we still deal uh, to a certain extent with the consequences of sin. Everybody in this room um, can, can look back on, uh, I'm sure, I'm confident, everybody, everybody can look back on bad decisions you've made or in life or whatever, and you suffer the consequences. The fact that you're saved doesn't, doesn't mean you don't suffer consequences of sin necessarily. Now, that will mean you know, we, don't, we don't suffer um, judgment, damnation, uh, separation from the Lord in eternity. But you make a bad decision, and you, know, you run a red light, and you get hit broadsided by a car coming from the other direction. That's the consequence of that bad decision to run the red light. Okay? And, you, and there's a good possibility if you run a red light, that's going to happen. You suffer the consequences of sin. We, we suffer the consequences of sin in this world. And then sometimes, as I said, it's, it's, it's directly related. In other words, God sends things to correct us. So in terms of discipline, you, you know, you've got the idea of formative discipline, which is just um, uh, you know, training like I was talking about, which I think the writer of Hebrews is, is talking about. And included in that, or you could say along with that, I guess, is corrective discipline, where you mess up and you get a spanking, right? Or, or you, you suffer the punishment. To call you back, to set you back on the right track. To, to help you refocus. So you've got formative discipline and corrective discipline. So I, I think we see all of that here is why I'm, I'm talking about all that. And Joel, in chapter 1, he seems to be, chapter 1 and 2, he's talking about the plague of locusts brought upon the land because it's a direct result, in other words, because of the sin of his people. And yet at the same time, he's, he's doing something positive there. It's not that he's, he's destroying his people. He's trying to, to set them right, set their focus right. Return to the Lord, Joel says. So, so behind this judgment for their sin is a call to repentance. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, with mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. In other words, I don't, I don't want any more empty religiosity. I want wholehearted repentance, change, change of mind, change of heart. Right? So God is doing something in this judgment. He's training them. He's disciplining them. He's correcting them. That element is here. But now, in chapter 3, the focus shifts to the nations. And we, we have been talking about judgment on Israel, on Judah, in the form of a plague of locusts, or in the, in which he does refer to as an invading army. But, you, but also sometimes it would be a literal invading army, like Assyria, Babylon, or nations that just troubled Israel in the past, like Egypt, mistreated Israel. God, God was using them 
That's, that's an awesome thought, too, and we don't have time to go into But sometimes, uh, I'll just mention it, sometimes God would use nations to, to correct his people and then punish the nations for doing it. Because they were uh, mistreating them, just like, just like Egypt did when they were sojourning there. All right, um, Syria and Babylon, as I mentioned, you know, they would come in and invade. It was a corrective measure, yet in the process they were mistreating the people of Israel, and so they are punished for it. So, so before we had corrective measures, you know, judgment brought on Israel for their sin with the intentions of calling them back to the Lord to repentance. But now the focus shifts, and, and now we really are, we're looking off in the future to a final judgment which will be poured out, Joel says here, on the nations. In other words, the idea is all those who have opposed God and opposed God's people. And in that day, the day of the Lord, two things are going to happen. The judgment of the nations, that is the condemnation of those who oppose God and oppose God's people. And then at the same time, the restoration of God's people. So so now what he's promising to his people is restoration. Rescue, salvation, to put it um, in an ultimate way, which, which uh, again, I think is what he's pointing to. So you've got these two facets, all right? Certain judgment on, on, the, um, on those who oppose God, or you could say um, he's bringing them into a, into a final conflict in order to pour out his wrath upon them. And then, secondly, a day of restoration for His people. So it's a, it's a day of revenge for the opposition, but it's a day of restoration for the people of God, the day of the Lord. That's what's coming. So let's look at some of that here. Verse uh, 2, the judgment is sure. Verse 8 says, the Lord has spoken. So all these things we're reading here, um, chapter uh Chapter 3, verse 1 on down, God is declaring this is what's going to happen, and it is certain. So, so verse 2, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. Now, we've already seen, um, in fact, look back for just a moment, chapter 2, verse 25. We, we've already seen some of this talk about restoration, and now he's, he's again returning to it and talking about the, uh, the fullness of it coming. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 25. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. So, even that devastation that was ordered by God to correct His people for their sins, He's saying, I'm going to restore what you lost. I'm going to restore what you suffered. It reminds you, doesn't it, of, for example, of uh, Job. It's an example of that. Lost possessions, lost children, lost health, lost everything. Lost the loyalty of his wife. And when it was all said and done, 
He had a hundredfold more than he started with. God restored, restored and multiplied what he lost. Now, but I want our, our, our sights to go a little higher. In other words, I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, um, if you lost ten bucks, you'll get it back or a hundredfold. I'm not saying that. Our, our sights, I think, for, for, for Joel's purposes here, we need to go a little higher and think in terms of what Jesus said, for example, when he said, if you forsake houses, land, children, mother, whatever, you know, for my sake, you get a hundredfold back return in this life and in the life to come. Promise of restoration. Whatever the gospel costs or whatever... It seems to cost us, I should say it that way, because the truth is it really doesn't. It, it, it does cost us, but it doesn't cost us, if that makes sense. I mean, it costs you your life. You've got to die. You can't live unless you die. You can't, you can't be raised unless you've died. But then again, you know, we don't have anything to do with the purchase. Christ did all that in His own life and death. But we do have to die and take up our, our cross. So there's promise here of... Uh, of restoration, judgment upon God's opposition, restoration for God's people. Let me come back to the judgment in just a moment, and then we'll, we'll move on to the, to the good news, all right, the rest, restoration part. That's, this is good news, too, because um, things are going to be set right. When, when, I mean, this, that ought to be just a, a, a powerful doctrine for us to, to encourage us and to sustain us. When I, when I look at the newspapers and I'm, and I'm seeing guys going around uh, beheading people, I mean, it's, it's insanity. Or, or, you know, we've got a clinic in town that murders babies in the womb. Or when I, when I think about things like Cancer or tragic accidents. Someone's here in the next moment, tragic accident, and they're gone. You've got a horrific loss, loved one. You think about those things. This day that lies ahead has some real substance to it. Restoration. Promise of life. And then the justice aspect of it. That, that God, we, we don't, you know, we're commanded, as a matter of fact, don't, don't seek revenge. The Lord says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, right? So, so I mean, that thought ought not even cross our mind. And by the way, I think that's what Jesus is talking about when he says, um, you know, someone hits you on the, on the cheek, turn to them the other cheek. He's just, he's just saying, you, 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 you can't have an attitude of revenge. Constantly trying to um, avenge yourself. God will take care of that. So he says in verse 2, I will enter into judgment with them there, that is with the nations, on behalf of my people. He's going to fix it. He's going to bring judgment on all of those who oppose him and who oppose his people. In fact... Let me give you a, a, a fulfillment um, that is referred to here in the book of Revelation. I'm going to give you a couple passages over here. So uh, 
Like I say, be, be prepared for that. You might want to keep a finger, keep a finger in Joel. And then we'll look at a couple of these also. Revelation chapter 6, for starters. I'm going to try to do this quickly, y'all, so don't, don't know. Like I say, quite a few, quite a few passages we'll probably look at, but uh, we'll tr- try to do it kind of quickly. Just keep, keep in mind Joel's prophecy as we look at these. Promise of judgment upon the nations and a promise of restoration for God's people, salvation for God's people. Think of it in terms of salvation in the ultimate sense. Save for eternity. All right. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 8. Um, this is the opening of the seven seals. And John, John, the Apostle John, is seeing all this vision of these things happening in, in heaven. And uh, verse 8. I looked and behold a pale horse. And, and uh, if, you, if you go back and read this section, these are the, the, uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse that are listed here. Verse 8, I looked and beheld a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with famine and with pestilence, and wild beasts of the earth. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, that's talking about the altar in, in heaven, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God, and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And do you see, they're crying out for things to be set right. And there's a sense in which everybody does, even lost people do, even lost people have this sense of, you know, things aren't right. In this world, a judgment comes down from a court, and people realize that it's wrong, um, or at least think it's wrong, whether it is or not. Sometimes, but they realize it's wrong, and they want things set right. And you see them holding up signs on the street: "We want justice." That's hardwired into us because we're made in the image of our Creator, and God is just. And in the beginning, He created all things good. And because of sin, it's distorted and perverted. And there's something in us that longs for it to be set right. And it will be. And so these souls who have been martyred for the testimony of Christ are crying out to the Lord, saying, How long? How long? before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Verse 11, Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So the answer is essentially, look, it's just not time yet. More have to suffer. More have to be killed and brought in. But the day is coming and it will be Set right. Justice will be done. Now, Joel says here that it's going to be in the form of a, a, of a war, which seems to me to be literal. Uh, and verse 1 and 2, he says, um, in verse 2 rather, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. The, the name Jehoshaphat means the Lord will judge. 
So I, I don't think this is a reference to a literal place. In, in the, uh, in the, in the, uh, from what I've read in the days of Joel, there was, there was no known valley called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. So this is probably uh, symbolism. In other words, I'm going to gather them to the place where the Lord, Yahweh, will judge. It's just a way of him announcing judgment. Now, will it be a literal valley and a literal war? Well, it seems to be. You, you read here and you read, for example, the, the book of Revelation, um, where these things are, are described, chapter 15, 16 of the book of Revelation. In fact, um, trying to move kind of quickly, but let's go, to, let's go for a minute to uh, chapter 16, verse, uh, Revelation chapter 16. Because I think this is referring to the same event. And again, this is part of John's vision of, of things that occur in the last day, in the last days, all right? The end time. Revelation chapter 16, verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. These are what is, they're called the bowl judgments. It's God pouring out his wrath on the, on the earth in the end time. He poured it out on the Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. And they were demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world. Now, here's... I know you're probably thinking, okay, there's a lot of symbolism there, and we don't know what all this means. All right? But look at what is clear here in verse, in verse 14, what they do... They are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And then uh, the words of Jesus are quoted here in verse 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be exposed. In other words, the idea is uh, blessed are those who are not caught off uh, off guard. Verse 16, and they assembled them at the place in Hebrew, uh, at the place that in Hebrew is called Hamageddon, the Mount of Geddon. Um, so I think that's probably the same thing Joel is referring to. He's talking about the final conflict in the last days between God and those who oppose God and those who oppose God's people. And this is what, what God is saying in, in Joel. I'm going to gather the nations and I'm going to bring judgment on them. I will return payment. Joel chapter 3, verse 4. I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. Again in chapter uh, 3, verse 7. Joel 3, 7. I will return your payment on your own head. I will send your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a nation far away. Essentially what he's saying there is, I'm going to do the same thing to you that you did to my people. And by the way, the Sabians, that's uh, uh, today, that's uh, Yemen, the country of Yemen. You've probably been hearing quite a bit uh, about it in the news. And then the Lord goes on to say in Joel chapter 3, verse 9, Proclaim this among the nations. That is, make it known that judgment is coming. So the day, the great day of the Lord, is the day when God will gather the nations before Him to be judged. And look at verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. There are three different valleys mentioned here. 
Um, really, I think they're, they're uh, essentially the same. The, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, I already talked about. The Valley of Decision, um, in, in verse 14, I think he's, he's talking about that same valley, but what he's meaning here is um, it, it is a place where there, there will be one decisive conflict. It's going to be a decisive battle, a decisive victory for the one who wins. That, of course, will be the Lord. One of my favorite, um, I I won't remember it verbatim, but one of my favorite Schwarzkopf moments, y'all remember the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, and, uh, uh, well, some of you do, General Schwarzkopf, um, they caught him, a reporter caught him going into a tent. They had this little tent set up for the um, official surrender. They had the... uh, Representatives, uh, military uh, leaders from Iraq in there, and the reporter, and, and you know, of course, they're always really good about asking dumb questions. But the the reporter asked General Schwarzkopf, who who you know, anytime you would see him in another context, he just seemed like a teddy bear, didn't he? I mean, he just seemed like a super nice guy. But but, but in these moments like this, you know, he's 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 taking care of business. He's down, you know, he's got serious business on his mind. The, the reporter asked, what will be the terms of surrender? And General Schwarzkopf said, there are no terms. This is unconditional surrender. Well, that's, that's the way it's going to be in the final day. There, there's not going to be any negotiations. This is going to be a decisive battle. And the Lord is going to emerge Victor, victor and, and there's not going to be any terms of negotiation. And that's what he's saying. Proclaim this to the nations. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of, the, of decision. Now, verse 16, Joel 3:16. The Lord roars from Zion. Of course, the imagery there, I mean, it's just that, you know, a frightful thing, you know, the, the roar. Um, our, our dog and our cat were rest, wrestling, as far as I say wrestling, wrestling, that's how we say it down here. But uh, they were wrestling on the floor one night, and we had just put in a, uh, a video to watch, and the MGM lion came on and let out that roar, and both the dog and the cat both froze, you know, in the middle of their wrestling <laughs> <laughs> they're looking because <laughs> it was kind of loud, and they're looking around like, "Oh, did you do that?" Or you know, dogs looking at the cat. Did you do that? <laughs> he got their attention. That's the idea. The Lord roars. He's he's not it's, it's, he's not a, coming as a lamb this time. It's the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He roars from Zion. I mean, this is serious business. He's bringing judgment. And nobody's going to escape it. But look at what he goes on to say. The Lord roars from Zion, utters His voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Remember back in in chapter 2 when He was calling on them to repent? Chapter 2, verse 13. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. 
So you've got these two aspects, right? Revenge and rescue. Revenge upon all who oppose God, who oppose righteousness. All, Paul says, who will not obey the gospel. Note the term obedience. It doesn't just say, you know, you get some mental assent to the gospel, but that you obey it, that you surrender, that you submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ by following Him, that you return to the Lord with your whole heart. For He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So this this lion who is roaring from Zion and bringing judgment on the nations of the world, the ungodly, is nevertheless a refuge for His people. Isn't that fascinating? That when all of this is coming down, God is pouring out His wrath that He remains a refuge for His people. In other words, if you want to escape the wrath of God, you must flee to God. Not away from Him, because that's an impossibility. To escape the wrath of God, you must flee to Him in humble submission, in obedience, nothing short of obedience. And in that day, He brings judgment on the world and is at the same time a refuge for His people. In Jerusalem, He goes on to say in verse 17, shall be holy. And in that day, verse 18, in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk. Are we talking about the same day? <laughs> yeah. Yes, it's just two different experiences for two different people. Those who belong to Him and those who don't. Wrath for those who don't know Him. Restoration, salvation for those who belong to Him. Again, verse 18. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk. And all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shedem. And before we close, look, let, let's go over. I want to show you where I think all this is headed. Let's go over to uh, Revelation chapter um, 20. Gosh, there's, there's so many. I've got so many passages here that I'd like to like to look at, but, uh, but for the sake of time, we're just going to have to do this. Here's where we're headed. Here's, here's the, final, the final, uh, um, final restoration. Um, Peter talks about times of refreshing from the Lord. Here, here's, the, here's the final restoration, the final salvation in, in uh, chapter 21. <clears throat> then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, that's Zion, by the way, Jerusalem. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. Now, no, notice something. Um, hopefully you didn't do like I did and, and lose your place in Job. Let me go back to Job for just a second here. Look at the very last verse in Joel. I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged. Again, he's talking about avenging the blood of his people. I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged. For the Lord dwells in Zion. So he, he, clo- he closes out his prophecy by giving an assurance that the Lord is with them and that he will um, be with them forever, granting them Eternal life. That's verse 20, by the way. Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged, for the Lord God dwells in Zion. Now, Paul says in 2 Corinthians that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. And I think these, these things that we're seeing in Joel have their ultimate fulfillment in Christ. And it's what we're seeing here. Uh, at least the, the finality of it is what we're seeing here in, in Revelation. So when God talks about causing His people to, um, to live forever, exist forever, and then being in their presence, ultimately what He has in view is, is us being in His presence, being with Him forever in glory. And that's what you're seeing in Revelation 21. One more thing, and then we're done here. Because um, likewise, this has two aspects. So I want to just draw a parallel here. Um, when that time comes, look, look, go back to uh, chapter, Revelation 19, chapter, uh, chapter 19, verse 17. You've heard of the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? All right, verse 17, I'm going to back up to, and, and also and look at verse, uh, in fact, let me start here, verse 9. Chapter 19, verse 9. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant. That is the angel said, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. All right, now look down to verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God. Now see if this sounds familiar at all, but but listen listen for our difference from what we just saw in verse 9. Verse 17. Um, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast of the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were, were gorged with their flesh. Isn't that amazing? He, he, he talks about this supper at the end. 
And for those who are in Christ, verse 9 says, it's, it's a blessing. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The picture is a celebration of a, of a marriage where we all sit down around the table and the marriage is conducted and consummated. Now, you know, now husband and wife sit in every, all of their party rejoicing. And so here's Christ with His bride, the church, joined together for eternity in a, in a, in a picture of celebration. But there's another aspect to this supper. For the ungodly, it's no celebration. And again, you, you, you see, how, remember in Joel, he says, I will gather all nations... Well, here he is, verse 17. Come, come, gather for the great supper. He's calling on the birds to come and gather for a feast on the flesh of the kings of the earth and the nations who oppose him. whole different picture of supper, isn't it? One, a time of intimate fellowship and rejoicing, and the other, a time of slaughter and scavengers eating flesh. And what is the difference? And this is what I want to leave you with. This is what I think all of the prophecy of Joel is pointing to when it's calling for repentance. Again, 2 Corinthians 1, Paul says, All the promises of God are in Him, that is, in Christ, yes and amen. So in other words, they, they come to their fruition, they come to their fullness, their fulfillment in Christ. So when Joel talks about a final day in which the nations shall be judged, the, the fulfillment of that is, is everybody outside of Christ. Everybody who's opposed to the gospel. In other words, he's not just talking about the Gentiles in general anymore. He's using, it's, the term would apply in the way that it's used in the New Testament. Gentiles, nations, referring to the ungodly, the, those who are unregenerate. unregenerate. Put it simply, those who are outside of Christ. And when he talks about restoration, fullness of blessing, enjoyment of the presence of God for eternity, God in our midst, when he talks about those things, he's talking about those who are in Christ. In other words, those promises are realized in Christ. Fellowship with Christ. So it's this simple. I mean, you don't have to sit there and, you know, count up all your bad deeds and all your good deeds, put them on the scales and say, which one's going to outweigh the other? I hope I make it. Hope my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds so that God will look, with me, look on me with favor. No, no, the question is, are you in Christ? Look, judgment is certain. It's coming. In one sense, it's already coming now. And it's coming in its fullness at the last day, in the end, when God will pour out His wrath on this world and on all those who have opposed the gospel. All those who have rejected the gospel. But there's a promise of salvation. Somebody said, uh, it may have been Spurgeon, I don't remember uh, for certain, but somebody said, there is no good news for those who reject the gospel. But for those who, who receive it, there's great news. Because, again, on that day, God will be a refuge to His people. And He will restore everything 
that has been lost and add more on top of that. I mean, you think the blessings of Joel were great. Um, just think about the blessings that we have in Christ. So, the great day, the great and magnificent day of the Lord is coming. It's coming. Will it be a day of terror and damnation for you, or will it be a day of salvation and homegoing for you? What makes the difference is, are you in Christ? Are you obedient to the gospel? Are you in Christ? Would you stand, please? We'll close with a word of prayer. And I ask you to just think about those things. You know, nobody here knows anybody else's heart 100%. God does, though. And you probably do, just like I probably know my heart. You probably know your heart. Even though we can be deceived. But, but you've but you got a better idea than anybody probably, of what's in your heart. God's got a perfect idea. Do you know Christ? Are you in Christ today? It's in Him that all these promises of salvation are realized, and in Him alone. Remember what Joel said, the day of the Lord is coming, who can stand? The answer is, nobody can stand outside of Christ. But if you're in Christ, He's your refuge. And that day holds blessing. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your promises of salvation through Jesus Christ. Lord, not one of us here, not a single person anywhere is capable of earning Your favor. So we're thankful, Lord, that You sent Your only Son to live and die for us, to pay the penalty for our sin to grant newness of life so that we may know You, so that we may live with You forever. And I just close now, Lord, by praying, asking if there's anyone in this room who does not know You in truth, open their heart up to that fact, Lord. Make them, give them understanding and grant repentance that they may cry out to You for mercy And know in truth the fullness of your salvation in Jesus Christ. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.